whether or not we all realize it, those of us who serve the Lord are participating in the most epic adventure of all time, space, and history. I think it's about time that we start celebrating the miraculous and wonderful ways that God touches our lives in everyday circumstances. I'm Karen Pennington, and this is Daily Adventures in Grace. Pennington here. Hey, friends. Uh, I'm thinking about social media again today, as I do often. Yeah, I'm thinking how, you know, it is a tool. Some great things can happen through it. Some horrible things can happen through it. Just like a tool. I mean, a hammer. You can use a hammer to build a house or to break a knee. And both have been done proverbially, proverbially through social media. But one of the challenges is that you just see the face that people put up for you and even people who are trying to be authentic uh you don't see everything that goes on every day and people you don't want to hear every little thing that goes on every little day you don't want to hear my step-by-step instructions for how to make eggs or you know the fact that I tied my shoelace every morning or what shoes I pick or what color I choose to wear nobody cares about that kind of stuff but uh, <laughs> God is really in all the details isn't he and um so what is gained through that is you don't lose all your time with little jots and tells of people day. What is lost is we can't really fully understand everything that someone goes through just by looking at, I mean, we're getting snapshots on Facebook, Facebook pictures, you know, moments in time. And we can celebrate with people. We can pray with people. Um, but we have to acknowledge there's a limitation of knowing what goes on in someone's day based on a couple of posts. So how much more true would that be when we talk about this historical faith document that we call the Bible? Um, And of course, it's more than a document, but we're chronicling from the beginning of time to the end of time in 66 books, some of which are only a page or two long. Um, So we're getting a lot of snapshots. We're getting a lot of clues. We're definitely getting clues for all the most important things in life. I'm not saying it's not important. But what we're not getting is every single detail. Um, And sometimes that doesn't matter. Sometimes we kind of got to fill in the blanks. Sometimes the Bible gives us really, really good clues. Um, I'm going into dangerous territory this morning because I don't enjoy when people preach a sermon or talk a lot and it's based more on speculation than what's actually in the Bible. But I'm going to speculate a little bit today um, based on two scriptures, two kind of weird scriptures. Uh... Ezra 2 talks about the return of the captives from Babylon. Now, for those of you that don't realize it, um, short history lesson. Israel went into slavery in Egypt over 400 years, got out of slavery, moved to the promised land that God had promised them, and God gave them some pretty clear directions. They followed him for a little bit and ignored him for a lot. And there was this whole balance between going against God, coming back, going against, coming back. And then ultimately they were, because of their disobedience, it was mostly going against God. Because of their disobedience, they were taken in captivity to Babylon for 70 years. And then the prophecy of Jeremiah was fulfilled when Cyrus, who had taken over Babylon, sent a bunch of the Israelites back. That's 
good bit of the Old Testament and a few few paragraphs. But so in Ezra, the Israelites, God's people, are about to come back from Babylon captivity, from being forced to live in this other nation. Um, at this point, it's not probably like almost none of the people that went over there. We're talking about seventy years later. There might be a couple, but they're coming back, quote unquote, home. And uh, what Ezra two two does is really detailed, very detailed about how many from each family came out. I started to do the math. It's like 30 lines of this family came back, this family came back, from this family came back, this is this group of people, this is that group of people. And I'm like, how am I going to add this all? And then I realized they added it for me. At the end of Ezra, it says 42,360 people came back. But then there was another 7,337 and then a couple others. So basically about 50,000 people came back from Babylon all at once to Judah, Israel, Israel's southern nation of Judah to the Jerusalem area. The Bible tells you that, I'm getting a weird thing on my screen. The Bible tells you that there is something else the Bible tells you if you rewind 70 years. Jeremiah 39.10 said that Nebuchadnezzar made almost everybody leave Jerusalem in that area and move to Babylon. Not just Jerusalem, but that area and move to Babylon. He left. I'm having a horrible time with this. There we go. He left the very poorest of poor in the land and said, you can have the land. So this we know. We know that a bunch of people were taken to Babylon 70 years later, and in their place, all the poor people got to take their land. 70 years later, they're sent back. Over 50,000 people sent back. That's what the Bible tells us. What the Bible doesn't tell us, and I'm going to speculate, is what happens when you have somebody who's worked the land their whole life and their father has worked the land and the grandfather has worked the land and a great emperor had given their grandfather the land and they have this big open space all to themselves and all of a sudden the people who owned it, whose family owned it and got it stolen from them, come back into town. What happens? I'm going to guess there was some conflict. I'm going to guess and speculate that there was some um, feelings of entitlement on both sides, understandably so. I've been working this my whole life. It was given to me. wasn't theirs to give. <laughs> um, I'm going to say that there was some strife. Maybe rebellion. And yet there was rebuilding. See, Ezra doesn't say anything about how miffed the poor people were when other people came back and took over some of their land. Now, mind you, the city of Jerusalem before the exile would have been maybe 2,500, 3,000 people. So over 50,000 coming back, they're going to populate Jerusalem and a lot of the areas around it. Because Jerusalem, the big city, had 3,000 people in it. Judah, Judah isn't that big. Um, that area isn't that big. But Ezra doesn't talk about that. The book of Nehemiah doesn't talk about that. They talk about the rebuilding. 
almost feels like that Facebook thing, right? Where um, you hear the good things that's happening, God is good, all that. But what about this stuff that's happening under the surface? Okay, that's a great family, but don't they fight too? You know, don't they have issues? That's a beautiful woman, but does she ever feel bad about herself? Does she? That person seems rich. Do they have any problems when they go home at night? They feel like they're in love. They look like they're in love. You know, there's always stuff on, happening under the surface. I'm. Um, this is a little extra biblical, but it's it's occurring to me today. There was going to be issues, absolutely, and yet you have Ezra, Ezra, whose people, who helped lead, lead the people, lead the people to return their hearts to God. You have Nehemiah, who in a very short period of time, really months rebuilt a wall they somehow figured out how to work together and do these great things it wasn't because of absence of strife i'm absolutely certain it was not i i absolutely guarantee you there were issues with people returning and taking over the land that had been given to the poor people i don't know how it worked there Absolutely. Nehemiah tells you there were issues with people who didn't want to work. And yet somehow through their leadership, through the grace of God, they learned how to work together, build the wall, rebuild the community, rebuild themselves. It wasn't an absence of issues. It wasn't an absence of difficulties. It wasn't an absence of people having their own point of view. That was a very understandable point of view, but that differed from others. So I'm thinking about our relationships. I'm thinking about our families. Sometimes something really bad happens in our family. Really traumatic. And we're like, oh, our family's so dysfunctional. It's over. It's hard to find a family nowadays that's not dysfunctional by some sort of textbook standard. That doesn't have somebody who's done something or everybody who's done something or completely opposing points of view. Um, and the same is true in our church. I mean, I think of my own church. I'm not going to. I love my church. But we have a lot of different points of view. We have people that come in with convictions that they really believe are from God that aren't always the same as other people's convictions that they really believe are from God. Now, we're pretty good, I think, at the most important ones. We do try to seek God through the Bible, but sometimes we'll read the same passage and disagree about what it means. You know, and um, people get on each other's nerves. We're family, which means we get on each other's nerves. My own family, I love them. We get on each other's nerves. I'm just talking about the one that I wake up to every morning. Oh, man, do I love him. Man, do we get on each other's nerves sometimes. It just, that, maybe we're both so nerve-wracking. I don't know. But um, I guess what I'm getting at here is when we see things that are functioning well, and they really are functioning well, it's not because they don't have those same day-to-day -day issues that they haven't told you about. It's not because they don't fight over who takes out the garbage that day or who's going to change the baby's diaper. It's not because they don't have sleep depravity or self-doubt or questioning of whether they're making the right decision or money issues. It's not because they don't have that. A rebuilding that happened in such an immensely short period of time. Immensely short. That's weird. Astoundingly short period of time. That returning of the people's hearts to God. It seemed almost automatic in Ezra and Nehemiah. It wasn't because there weren't issues. It's because in the end, 
they looked to God. And they trusted God to work them through their issues. It wasn't because they did it perfectly. It wasn't because Nehemiah was the best leader of all space, time, and history. He seemed to be a very strong leader, as did Ezra. And they, I guarantee you, the Bible doesn't tell you about their faults and shortcomings, but I guarantee you they had them. The Bible doesn't tell you about the squabble between land, between people about land or about the hard feelings or about the forced one way or the other, or somebody who felt injustice happened to them. Because no matter how you look at it, the people who didn't get their land back and the people who got their land taken from them, some sort of injustice happened to somebody. We all have rights. And sometimes me taking my right infringes upon yours and vice versa. Whose right is right, you know? But the reason that they can overcome it is when ultimately you're looking to God to help you work through it. It has to be about God. Because if it's about us... We're always going to mess it up and we're never, ever going to get beyond our own understanding. It's too limited. But in the case of Ezra and Nehemiah, there was such a reliance of God, such an understanding, I think, maybe brought about by 70 years of not having, the, not even having the illusion that they were in control, understanding, okay, God, we need to rely something more powerful than us. I'm not even saying everybody did that. Obviously, there were still faithless people, but some of the key leaders understanding. Sometimes that's all it takes. A few key people understanding, God, we need to lean on you. What would happen in this country if more key people were saying? The key people in each church said, okay, this is a squabble. We don't have a good answer. God, let's lean into you. Tell us what to do, God might mean we give up on something that we shouldn't have to. It might mean that we feel a little bit betrayed. It might mean that we feel like, oh my goodness, they totally did the wrong thing and I still have to stay here. And small potatoes. Maybe the reason the Bible doesn't talk about the squabble about land between the people who had been farming it for 70 years and the people who had it taken away from their family before that is because that's not what's most important because enough people focus on those little daily things. Those become their life definers. Their life is defined by the little fights instead of the major victories. What defines your life? I know you have that unspoken stuff. We all do, but are you defined by the fact that your child answered back smart to you yesterday? Are you defined by what you eat on a daily basis? Are you defined Are you defined by God? Are you defined by the fact these are all great. God is in all of these. I can celebrate. But what I'm celebrating is God's victory. What I'm celebrating is not my failure to understand everything, but that God knows, knows and controls it all from the beginning. And I just get to be part of it. See, what the Bible doesn't tell us are details that God was in. Well, we get to the headlines. Doesn't mean the details aren't important. Doesn't mean the details weren't there. But the headline is that God wins. The headline is that God uses it. The headline is that we can be part of all of that or we can choose not to. What do you choose? 
Lord Jesus, this was a weird morning. I didn't know what to say. I wasn't sure what was going to come out of my mouth. And honestly, I'm not even sure how this will affect anyone. But God, I do thank you that you care about the details, even the ones that we can't write down. I thank you, God, that you can be in the details. And I thank you, God, for the reminder that sometimes we just have difficult situations where there's a hard answer, Lord. And in those situations, I just want to claim it's not always about saying or doing exactly the right thing. It's about leaning into you. Help us to lean into you um, throughout all of our unwritten realities. The left out realities that people don't see, God, you see. Let us trust them all to you. In your name, amen. Be blessed, my friends.